Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another edition of Concord Matters. We've got your regular fifth Tuesday party of personalities in the studio. Uh, Mr. Peter Slayton and Pastor Sean Smith joining myself, Pastor Jonathan Vista. Can you talking about the Augsburg Confessions Apology? But before we get there, we got a special update for you as well. If you listen to one of my other shows, morning show called Sharper Iron, you know there's a regular guest we have on. His name is Pastor Chris Hall, and he's a pastor down there in the greater Houston area at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. He's joining us on the phone right now to talk a little bit about what he's seeing from, uh, from his perspective and as well give his counsel to us and others in the wake of this national tragedy. Pastor Hall, are you there? Brother Fisk, I am here. It is, It is as always, good to hear your voice. And as I was saying before, we've got a ah. couple, couple of things we want to learn from you. But the first one is, I mean, it's, it's hard to get mm-hmm. news at this point. So so what what are you seeing down there? What can you tell us for sure is, is going on? How are people doing? Some are doing well. I mean, Houston, Harris County is the county that Houston is in. So it's a huge county. There's like almost 7 million people in this one county. Some are in downtown Houston, and you have water all the way up to signs on the highway, so it's up really, really high. And then you get up to my area, which is Tomball, which is about 25 miles northwest of Houston. And you have some people, most of them have lost power um, to their homes, stuck in their homes. Then you have the Woodlands, which is a little further north, and they had to evacuate. Some of the members I have, they've lost their houses. I mean, they have four or five feet of water in their houses. So I think the death toll is up to 17 now. 17 people died actually this morning. One of our own Houston uh, policemen died drowning, trying to save somebody. Mm. So it's a lot of a lot of terror, a lot of just bad stuff happening. But in addition to that, you see. Uh, the goodness of Christ working uh, through people as they help their neighbor, people actually trying to help rescuing people, feeding people, housing people. So it's uh, the worst of it and the best of it happening. So in terms of helping people out, you know, what, what's going on from your mm-hmm. end? Is the church getting together to, to reach out to your members, to find we your are, members? We are. My, my associate and I, one of our members, actually drove around this morning meeting with people, all my elders are calling people. We're taking donations at our family center throughout the week. Um, I and a few others from Zion are teaming with another church here in Tomball called Salem Lutheran. Uh, we're teaming with them to help people in their homes. The big problem for Houston isn't like uh, wind, like you get down south toward Rockport. The problem is people have just, they have tons of water in their houses. Yeah. So they have to wait for an insurance claims to come through and look at it. Then we can come in and start helping them. So going to be a long, long drawn out process uh, of uh, helping people. There's really no damage like flood damage either. I mean, it, it, it no, totally it, changes it, everything. Crazy. And it's scary because you can't control it. <laughs> you can't, can't get it to stop. So you can only just wait it out. 
So then in terms of, uh, you know, the, the spiritual side of this, which is, I think, so important, what do you got to say to the person who's going to say, look, this is yet another example of how Christianity is a dumb idea, how there is no God, how, how a good God couldn't possibly let this kind of thing happen? Well, today is the feast of the martyr of St. John the Baptist, right? That's right. So, so I tell him, God hates you. <laughs> I know that's silly to say. What do you mean by that? Unpack that. Unpack that. I'll unpack it. I'll unpack it. The wrath of God is real. Yeah. It's real. It's not fake. This isn't something Christians made up so we can sell Jesus to you. Oh, you know, hey, God's really mad about sin and everything Adam and Eve did and, and the Canaanites did. And, hey, there's this guy, Jesus, who died on the cross. And, hey, it's gone. No, it's real. The, God of, the wrath of God is a real, real thing. Don't play with it. Don't mess with it. It's like when the children asked the gopher, is Aslan um, dangerous? He said, yeah, of course he's dangerous. He's a lion. But guess what? He's good. And we know the goodness of God not by what we look at in creation or what we experience on a day-to-day basis. The only way we know that God is good is that the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, took the fullness of the Father's wrath on himself on the cross and there put it all to death so that we may live forever with him in heaven. Outside of Christ, all you get is this dangerous stuff. All you get is the stuff that scares you about God. But in Christ, you have his mercy and grace. In Christ, you see Christians actually loving their neighbor in this time, opening up their homes, opening up everything they have for their neighbor so they may love them. So if I get someone who looks at this time and says, oh, you know, God isn't good. Yeah, he is good. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, I know God is good. Right, he's G- not safe outside of that. Jesus died on the cross to save us from much worse things than this, and this is just what yeah. God is allowing, even as He stays His hand to come down upon us. The real problem is not that God is evil; it's that we're evil, and that something's got to be dealt with about that. I love your answer there. Although I, I do got to take a moment to just with you, my friend, and point out. Uh, I think Mr. Beaver would be offended that you called him a gopher uh, as you described oh, his conversation. The beaver, not the gopher. You're right. <laughs> I think that's I'm hilarious. Sorry. I- I, I, in Texas, we shoot anything that breathes, so I don't really care. <laughs> That's what right. Any vermin, right? They're all the same. Yeah, any vermin we shoot at me, hey, so well, I don't care. Our, our prayers are with you, and we hope to touch base with you again in the in the coming weeks to, to continue to get updates from you and uh, the people of uh, Tomball as well as the people of Houston. Pastor Chris Hull of Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, thanks for giving us your time today. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Will do, will do. And also, we're going to go right away here to Mr. Peter Slayton, who you guys already know is a member of the show regularly, but who does work in the communications department of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to talk for just a minute about what, you know, Pastor Hull mentioned how you can get involved. Well, uh, if you're not in Tomball, how are you going to give stuff to the church in Tomball? There's a yeah, way to do exactly. That. We are all hands on deck right here at the International Center right now, and one of the newest uh, ways we've we've launched this just this morning for you guys to help is a text to give option. So if you are financially able to, you can now write from your cell phone, your mobile device, text the words LCMS Harvey one word LCMS Harvey to four one four four four. That's uh. The number you're sending it to is 41444 and text LCMS Harvey, no spaces, no, you know, <laughs> extra characters or anything like that. And you will get a text message back with the way that you can just give immediately right there. Um, 
it, it doesn't get any more simple than this. There are options. You just push buttons to decide how much you want to give. Uh, if you're giving with your credit card, you, there's actually an option. You can scan your credit card right there with your phone. So you don't even have to manually enter all of your credit card information. It's just right there. Scan your card. You can give. Uh, this is money we are that, that is going to disaster relief. I mean, this is a dedicated uh, way to give to Hurricane Harvey relief. We are partnering directly with the Texas district and congregations down there. Uh, this is not just the... You know, the International Center kind of doing its own thing. No, we are working hand in glove with the Texas District and local congregations there in Houston and the surrounding area to provide this assistance. We've got a team heading down there tomorrow um, while the floodwaters are still still going in the middle of the disaster to begin evaluating how are we going to help boots on the ground as soon as we can get there. LCMS Disaster Response, formerly World Relief and Human Care, is a, not ancient, but an old school, like Missouri Synod, long-standing, I'd say trusted advocate of yeah. people in need, uh, handling the funds for the sake of those who need the funds and not taking large administrative swaps off the top of that. So this is something that, you know, really is if you're in the Missouri Senate and you want to get things to where they need to go in Texas, this is one of the best ways to do it while also having it linked to people who put the gospel kind of at the center of what they ultimately do. Two more questions for you, Mr. Slayton, Peter. Yeah. Peter. Um, <laughs> Ooh, uh, I get to be Mr. Slayton. That's today. right. That's right. As you're, as you're speaking in official capacity yep, yep. Uh, one is well what if i'm afraid of of giving via a cell phone that that seems kind of scary to me and second what if i don't have one yeah there are any number of ways you can give online uh you can call the phone number i don't know the phone number offhand but you can actually call directly here to our offices uh the church information center is the number to call they can direct you where you need to go uh, I wish I had that number offhand. I'll have I don't. it for you in a second. All right, cool. Uh, you can call there. The ladies there are fantastic. They will help direct you and uh, take your donation information that way. You can mail checks. 1333 South Kirkwood Drive, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, 6th... What's our zip code here? 63122. 63122. There I we go. I magically know that you off can, the top you of my head. Can, you know, you know, mark your check in your memo line, Hurricane Harvey Relief. That's, That's right. all you got to do, and that'll... It'll get where it needs to go. So there's, you know, it, there's every way to give. Uh, um, the the easiest and fastest is the one we launched this morning. But there there's any other number of ways to give as well. And right. of course we have our website lcms.org/slash/give/now. Slash hurricane. As you said, That's though, about, right about the cell phone text, <laughs> if you do have cell phone technology, it is the fastest way to give. So give yep. give the way they would do that. And there's a number right. for that. So 4144. Send a text to 4144. Your text will be LCMS Harvey. One word, no spaces. And you'll get a text immediately back with the form for you to fill out and submit your gift. Text LCMS Harvey. To 41444. All right. Or if you don't have the cell phone, 1-888-843-5267 is the Church Info Center here at the Lutheran Church Missouri Center. And to say you want to help out the victims of Harvey, both Christian and non-Christian alike, in need of mercy in yep. this time of national disaster. Right right now, financial giving is the, is the need. Uh, in the coming weeks, we will put out calls for volunteers. There will be plenty of work for a long time to come for volunteers as well. But right now, the best way to help is to give. Pastor Sean Smith, before we hit the apology, got anything you want to add? Yeah. Um, what does Walter oh, say? About this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Walter would probably say something similar to what Pastor Hall said, but uh, I don't believe Pastor Hall is a native Texan, and I'm not a native Texan either, but I, I do claim part Texan in me. This does not negate the fact that God still has blessed Texas. I just want everybody <laughs> to know 
that Texas is still blessed. Uh, I, have, <laughs> I have no response no, to that. I don't yeah. either. It's I mean, unanswerable. <laughs> yeah. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. I guess in, in that regard... You could say that. No, I, I think the trial for us right now is Sean's love of Texas. That's right. Yeah. You know what? We're I, experiencing a trial of that right there. Personally, never really having lived in Texas, only visited very briefly. I I, I got a soft spot for Texas. I really it, love it's Texas. Quite beautiful. It, it's yeah. it's a it's a wonderful state, and I believe in many ways it's one, it's the best of what our country has to offer. But I I do got to beg to differ at this mo- moment. I mean, this is one of the reasons why it's not so good to be only the Lone Star State. It's good to to not be alone and have. The other 49 there to help in a time of emergency. Not that Texas couldn't handle it. They probably could. I mean, that's kind of right. Yeah, that's, yeah they're, they're pretty self-sufficient if they self-sufficient. need to be. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Before before we get ourselves in trouble with the Texans or otherwise, uh, let's dig into what we officially know how to talk about. And for the most part, <laughs> the, the apology of the Augsburg Confession. We're going to be picking up at uh, paragraph 120. Three, where the argument is now continuing or shifting into particular texts. So Melanchthon, in this very long, very piece-by-piece dismantling of the confutation of the Augsburg Confession put forth by the medieval Roman Catholic theologians, is beginning to address their actual use of Scripture and show how they're pulling things from where they, well, into where they don't belong and abusing the meaning of the text themselves. And today's section here, I mean, this is really the... Uh, the main piece. I mean, I, I remember as a young Lutheran at seminary, still struggling with this, and it's always the one that people want to bring up in Bible studies, James chapter 2. What about James? Doesn't James teach something different than salvation by grace through faith alone? So we're going to read a couple paragraphs here, and then we'll we'll, we'll dig into it. Uh, he says, again, paragraph 123 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, or depending on your, your edition, it's 5 and, and other... Additions, yeah. (laughs) Well said, right? Uh, From James chapter 2, they cite, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. No other passage is supposed to be more contrary to our belief, but the reply is easy and plain. If the adversaries do not attach their own opinions about the merits of works, the words of James have in them nothing that is unhelpful to us. But wherever there is a mention of works, the adversaries add their own false, godless opinions. They say we merit forgiveness of sins by means of good works, that good works are a satisfaction and a price on account of which God is reconciled to us, and the good works overcome the terrors of sin and death. They also say that good works are accepted in God's sight on account of their goodness, and that they do not need the mercy and Christ as reconciler. None of these things came into James's mind. Yet the adversaries defend such teachings, like this passage of James, as an excuse. Which, so far, is to say that the passage by itself doesn't present a problem to our, our position until you start attributing merit by which you earn justification to the quote that's quoted. He goes on. First, we must consider that the passage is more against the adversaries than against us. For the adversaries teach that a person is justified by love and works. They say nothing about faith by which we receive Christ as reconciler. In fact, they condemn this faith, not only in sentences and writings, but also by the sword and capital punishment, which is definitely historically true. These days, the Roman Catholics aren't doing that quite as often, but uh, but back in the day, that was for sure. They endeavor to exterminate the teaching of faith in the church. James teaches much better. He does not leave out faith or present love in preference to faith, but retains faith so that in justification Christ may not be excluded as reconciler. 
When Paul forms a summary of the Christian life, he also includes faith and love in 1 Timothy 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, first point, if you go look at the whole section in James, he definitely talks about having faith. He doesn't say you don't need any faith or just cast faith to the side. It's part of his position. And secondly, as he talks about showing what you believe by what you do, he certainly isn't telling you to kill people, which is what the Roman Catholics at the time were doing, right? And so it, this is how Melanchthon can say this is against their, their position. Second, he says, paragraph 125, the subject matter itself shows that the works spoken of here follow faith and that such faith is not dead, but living and effective in the heart. James did not believe that we earn the forgiveness of sins and grace by good works. After all, he is talking about the works of those who have been justified, who have already been reconciled and accepted, and who have received forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the adversaries err when they conclude that James teaches that we merit forgiveness of sins and grace by good works, and that we have access to God by our works, apart from Christ as reconciler. So, second point, James is talking about our life with each other after we're justified by Christ. That's the kind of justification he's talking about. You could call it de jure humano, uh, before each other, before mankind. Third, and then we'll throw it back to you guys. Third, James says a little earlier that regeneration happens through the gospel. For he says in James 1.18, of his own will, that's God's own will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. When James says that we have been reborn by the gospel, he teaches that we have been born again and justified through faith. For the promise about Christ is grasped only through faith, when we set it against the terrors of sin and death. James does not therefore think that we are born again through our works, which is the real point. It, the, he's basically covering the basics of how to understand Scripture. I mean, that's what Melanchthon's doing here. Keep things in context. Oh, look, the adversaries are pulling it out of context as if this verse stands alone on its own as a proverb where it's true in and of itself without anything else. He said, okay, you can't do that. Uh, even the Proverbs, in many cases, you can't do that with. So, And then second, don't bring your own baggage to the text. Just go with what the text actually says and don't read into it. Now, that's actually, I think, one of the harder things for any of us to do. And I think most people where they struggle with, with reading scripture is when they don't realize that they're bringing their own baggage to that text. But that's what he's Melanchthon saying here. Look, don't bring your baggage to the text and read it all in context. And not just the context of the chapter, but the context of James and the rest of scripture too. This is why Walther, a guy that you sometimes quote, Pastor Smith, um, I, I believe he says that Scripture is a closed book outside of law and gospel. We we do bring our own baggage to the text by nature, and the only way to have that stop is for the gospel to kind of remove that veil. If I can, if I can borrow the veil of Moses' language, uh, remove that veil from our eyes. Yes. Uh, so. Thank you for quoting Walther more than me and accusing <laughs> so me of it today. From time. But yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 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 real thing that that book ends this section, especially that's wrestling with this James text and and these passages, as you pointed out, it goes back to uh, line one eighteen, paragraph right, one eighteen, right. is where they're basically just taking each passage that the adversaries have thrown at them to say, see, this is why you are wrong, Lutherans. And and we're to one of the big ones, this James one, and it's really going to go to paragraph 133. And, uh, and, and, and what bookends it here in Melanchthon's argument 
is what we talked about when we were on a few weeks ago, this difference between what we call exegesis and eisegesis. And exegesis is letting the text speak for itself. It will interpret itself, the whole context of Scripture. You did a very yeah, good job explaining out it. out of the text. Yeah, the yeah it's, it's literally that meaning, right? Yep. And eisegesis is, is I'm, I'm going to the text with my preconceived notions already, and I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And and this is one where I, I love, you know, we, we talk kind of, you know, kind of the subtle snark in the way that Melanchthon is writing here. Or you know, not he, so subtle sometimes. Well, not so subtle, <laughs> right, right. Especially here where he just lays it out there. He's like, actually, this text speaks more against you Catholics yeah, than it yeah. does us Lutherans. And uh, and he's doing this really well. And, and, and thank you for grabbing that larger section, too, if I can kind of summarize it all together. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, what he's making the point is the first point against them is that you you omit faith altogether in this talk. Now, previously in this article, he's talked about the way that they do talk about faith, which is faith formed by love. So they're not even using faith, that term, in the same way that we as Lutherans and what scripture uses. But he's saying, in this case, when it comes to the James passage, you're not even talking about faith at all. You're just talking pure works here. Yeah, you've thrown faith out entirely. Right, absolutely. You've thrown it out entirely. And then the second point he's making here is that works follow faith. This is very clear in what James is, is laying out here. And then I'm just doing the broad kind of summary overview here and we'll, we'll dig more in. But then that third point that he makes too, again, is that in the context of James itself, you know, just outside of even this uh, chapter two, verse 24 passage, right? In the whole context of James, it is clearly laid out uh, because earlier, I believe it's in chapter one of James, uh, you know, it, it is faith first and then works. And so that's kind of his threefold argument of how this speaks against the Catholics and what they were writing in the confutation or presenting in the confutation, their response to our Augsburg confession. And so he's uh, engaging them on their own argument. I think Melanchthon's also pointing out what we always do if we're not careful in how we talk about faith and works. Because if you don't insist on faith alone and you see the arguments and you even bring in works a little bit, faith has to be alone to be faith at all. I mean, if you're going to bring works into the equation of justification, it's faith is it's an all or nothing proposition in regards to faith because any little bit of works that sneaks its way in there means that faith isn't actually faith. And and Melanchthon simply pointing out, hey, you know, like you said earlier, well, they were talking about faith earlier, kind of defined it differently, and now when the rubber hits the road, hey, look, faith is gone entirely. It's not even there. We're completely focused on works, which is what we always tend to do. As soon as we bring those works into our justification in some way, they're eventually going to take over. And, and our thinking and our focus is all going to end up on those works themselves, because that's that's what you do. That's what our sinful nature does. There's there's no other way to to go about that if you're going to give a little bit of ground on faith alone. Yeah, you make a really excellent point there. That uh, you know, it's not even really faith. You know, <laughs> yeah. before we even get to throwing it out the door, right. which is the inevitable conclusion, yeah. it's not even faith in the first place. You've already given it up. Yeah, you're not yeah. trusting Christ alone. Uh, you're you're trusting. Christ plus my works. And, and, and this is the famous Luther line, you know, that, you know, it is faith alone that saves, right? But it, but faith is never alone. Hmm. And that's really the point that James is making here um, yeah. in, in this line is that your faith is never going to be alone. Oh, you talk a lot about your faith, Christians. Well, how about that show itself? All yeah. right. Well, um, let's see what that looks like. Come on. Yeah. 
you yeah. know, and it's kind of the encouragement to the new man in Christ as well. Yeah. Um, which we would talk about in terms of being the third function of the law. It's part or of the, the sanctified obedience. life. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Some, which is why which this eventually is tied we'll in get with, to that here. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's why this is part of that uh, Article 5 and Article 4 together. Yeah, and yeah. We have that confusion as to depending on what the version yeah, the you're numbers. using and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> Some of that language there reminds me of a distinction they taught us at the seminary about uh, the object of faith. So in one sense, you can think of faith as a blanket trust in something. And what we're talking about right now is we're using the term faith, and we're talking about having that blanket trust be entirely in Jesus, in his work, and his merits. All our faith is in him. When you try to insert your own works into that thing you're trusting in, now you're trusting in two things, or you have faith in two things, Jesus and works. The result of trusting in Jesus and works is always going to be that you're going to doubt your works. You already are doubting Jesus. That's why you're adding the works to it. And then you're going to begin doubting your works. And like unto a drug that you have uh, kind of had it made a gateway jump to, because you doubt your works, you're going to th- your only answer is to go and get more of them. Right, you got to try to go make the doubt go away. So you go try to find more works, and you keep compiling works upon works upon works, trying to make the doubt go away and restore that faith that rightly should have been pl- placed in Jesus all along, but eventually is not in Jesus at all. It's only in the works and this giant pile of things you've created for yourselves, even up to the level where you're going to ignore clear passages of Scripture that would tell you otherwise. Which my, my favorite part of the uh, argument that he that he's laid out so far is that last point about. Chapter 1, verse 18, and even some of the section before it, where James very, I think, very clearly demonstrates where salvation comes from. Even with verse 16, and again, verse 17 often gets misinterpreted in the evangelical world too, so there is an issue here. But verse 16, when he begins, don't be deceived. What I'm going to tell you next is really important. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from a from above. That is, and this is where that, that verse usually gets used to talk about like, you know, I really want a new sweater, so I pray about it, and it's a gift from Jesus, or a gift from God. But I, I'm convinced that in the Greek, what's really going on here is it's talking about the one single absolute perfection comes only from above. That perfection is salvation in Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift, the one good man, he comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, right? Incarnate among us, of the Virgin Mary, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And of this Father of lights, the Father, and then verse 18 is the one that's quoted, which again, this is the context of 17 and why I think it's it's about Jesus and not about, say, your new sweater. Of his own will, of God's own will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth. Has how salvation come? By works? No, by a promise, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, right? That, that our faith alive now, before the resurrection of the dead, before the resurrection of all creation, is already alive here in the midst of the dying world. And in, from this, then, comes a recognition that if I believe this, it is going to impact me. It's going to change the way I look and act among others, which is where the language in cha- or the, the stuff in chapter 2 about justification before each other, before men, really comes into conversation, right? And, and when I say that, does that does that easily strike for you guys? So you got justification by grace through faith is before God. We are we are made innocent in God's sight. But just because I can say that doesn't mean that some guy on the street is going to believe I'm innocent if I walk up and steal his stuff, right? He's going to think I'm not innocent. Yep. So if, he, if I want him to hear about Christ and believe in it, then I need to justify myself before him, which means trying not to be as much of a jerk as I'm maybe not punching him in the face yes. and saying hi. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and that's really going to come up here in a, in a couple paragraphs when we talk about that, when we're using this, we're using it in the, the, the judicial terminology, but we'll get to that uh, here in a little bit too. But on the practical level, I, I want to point out what you were talking about too. I, I, well-meaning Christians, well-meaning Lutheran Christians ask me, you know, uh, sometimes 
you know, Pastor, if the goal is to get Christians living the Christian life, you know, uh, which I'm not sure is the goal, right? But, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, what does it matter how the works come about? And I say the order is very important because as we've been talking about here, it becomes a very quick move to trusting your works and they just, they will inevitably take over. And then what you have is an idol and, and we have to remember the nature of an idol. I mean, a lot of times we think it's just an outright rejection of God and these kind of pagan beliefs and things like that. But you see, especially even the golden calf in with Israel, you know, it wasn't that they outright abandoned God. I mean, he's up there on the mountain with Moses, you know, in the cloud and smoke and they, they clearly see him. It's they're supplementing, you know, this golden calf and they're worshiping it alongside as an I image just want of a physical God. representation exactly. of them right here. Exactly. That cloud of fire and flame up on the mountain. It's not good enough. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> So that is always the nature of our idol worship, and and our works easily become that idol as well. I think Pastor Fisk. Oh, hey, break! I'll talk about after the break. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Ross Johnson, director of LCMS Disaster Response, talks about the ongoing efforts of the church in the wake of Harvey, a devastating storm on the U.S. Gulf Coast. People are asking right now, what is the best thing that I could be doing? What's the most helpful thing that I could be doing? And of course, as Christians, the number one thing that we can be doing is praying, praying for wisdom, praying for guidance, praying for strength, praying for endurance, that God will sustain the work that is being done, but also to encourage those who are victims. The second thing is to give. There is nothing that's needed more right now than immediate needs to be met. People are going without home, without shelter, without food, without a vehicle. And insurance isn't always kicking in. A lot of people are underinsured or they're going to have large gaps by the time that they're going to get any financial assistance. Us being able to support people financially is critical. And lastly, in the weeks to come, not now, but in the weeks to come, there's going to be many opportunities to volunteer. Go to lcms.org to give now. Come on, smile. Honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio. An hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Orazio. The dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. Did you know there is a new Texas translation of the Bible? In a new app for English Bible translations, you becomes y'all when the original language indicates a second person plural. In the Hebrew Bible, there are at least 2,698 verses and 2,022 in the Greek with you plural translated as the English you, which could lead the English reader to assume it's directed to an individual rather than the church as a community. For example, 
In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the original reads, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Texas version reads, Do y'all not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? Engage with the Bible, y'all, with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Listen to Concord Matters, where we seek to be of one mind in our Lord Jesus Christ and His Most Holy Word, re-speaking, same saying, confessing again what the Scriptures say for the sake of unity in the Church and the growth of all of our faiths. We're talking about the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 5, paragraphs 23 and following, where Melanchthon takes to task the medieval Roman understanding of the Book of James, and frankly, the modern one as well, where people want to assume... Your mic's on. What do you what do you want to say? 123, not 23. 20, 2023. 2, 243? 123. Paragraph 123. <laughs> what would we do without Pastor Sean Smith? <laughs> yeah, a virtual thesaurus. What would Walter of, uh, say about that? <laughs> that's exactly right. You fools. <laughs> well, I had a point at some point, but it doesn't matter because um, Peter Slayton had a point before we went to break. And I, I did. I had a thought when you mentioned uh, talking about the object of faith from, from seminary. I, I think that's one of those things that, at least for me, especially in this moment, just kind of re-clarified, okay, what is the actual issue going on here? And the issue is you can't have multiple objects of your faith. Right. So right. Christ alone means the object of your faith, that object in which you are placing your full trust is Christ. Your faith cannot have more than one focus. So if if your faith is also going to trust a little bit in your works, I mean, we're talking about, I've been trying to think of a word picture and I haven't come up with a great one yet, but I've just imagined these two foundations. One is Christ. One is your works. Uh, one's a one's built on rock, one's shifting sand. But in the middle of these, there is just this deep, unsurpassable chasm that you cannot cross the two, and you gotta you gotta stand on one or the other. You you can't do the splits and stand on both of them. You're gonna fall off one or the other. And this is you you get you get one object to put your trust in your faith in. Can't have both. Well, just to use your metaphor, you know, if you got one foot on quicksand and one foot on a rock. You're still going to sink in the quicksand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's going to have both feet on the rock. So th- let's look at a couple more paragraphs here. And it's the rock that the church is built on. Exactly. Yeah. Peter tying in the. the oh, wait, no. Peter, <laughs> but the hymn from this weekend, right? Right. Great hymn. Oh yeah, yeah. And the gospel reading. Yep, yep. House of Living Stones. Yep. Paragraph. One million three hundred and twenty-seven. Forty-two. One twenty-seven. Or two forty-eight, depending on what version you're using. Ah, uh, yes. You'll have to teach me what that means sometime, because I don't, I don't know how those numbers work. But from these things, Melanchthon says, it is clear that James does not contradict us. He criticized lazy and secure minds that imagined they have faith, although they do not have it. He made a distinction between dead and living faith. He says that faith does not bring forth good works faith that does not bring forth good works is dead. That is, and I'm inserting here, that is not really faith at all. He also says that a living faith brings forth good works. Furthermore, we have shown already several times that we, what we mean by faith, for we do not mean passive knowledge, such as devils have, right? Because the devils believe in God and shudder, as James says. Indeed, instead, 
We mean faith that resists the terrors of conscience and encourages and comforts terrified hearts. Such faith is not an easy matter, as the adversaries dream. Neither is it a human power, but it is a divine power. Through faith we are reborn and overcome the devil and death. Paul says to the Colossians that faith is powerful through the power of God and overcomes death. Quote, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Since this faith is a new life, it necessarily produces new movements and works. So James is right in denying that we are justified by such faith that is without works. But when he says that we are justified by faith and works, he certainly does not say that we are born again by works. Neither does he say that Christ is our reconciler only partly, and our works are our atoning sacrifice in part. Nor does he describe the way of justification, but only the nature of the just. That's really key. After that, after they have already been justified and regenerated, the nature of the just. So how does a justified person live? That's what James is talking about. Here, to be justified does not mean that a righteous person is made from a wicked person. It means to be pronounced righteous in a judicial sense, as in Romans 2. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. These words, doers of the law who will be justified, contain nothing contrary to our doctrine. We too believe, about James' words, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, because people are certainly pronounced righteous, having faith in good works. As we have said, the saints' good works are righteous and please God because of faith. Right. So the idea, again, is that, that justification is kind of bleeding out of us, so that what we have been declared to be is what the world begins to see us being. Finishing, for James praises only works produced by faith, as he testifies when he says of Abraham, faith was completed by his works. Doers of the law will be justified. Namely, those who believe God from the heart are pronounced righteous. Afterward, they have good fruit, which pleases God because of faith. So they are the fulfillment of the law. That uh, These things, simply put, contain nothing incorrect. However, they are distorted by the adversaries who attach to them godless opinions made in their mind. For it does not follow that works earn the forgiveness of sins, works regenerate hearts, works are an atoning sacrifice, works please without Christ as the atoning sacrifice, and works do not need Christ as the atoning sacrifice. Much less, I should add, <laughs> that, that Mary participates as a co-redeemer in the atoning sacrifice. <laughs> James says nothing about these things, yet the adversaries shamelessly conclude such things from James's words, or as we would say earlier, they, they read them into James' words. That's a really good summary of kind of everything we've been talking about. I mean, it's specific to James, but this whole article, he just kind of summarized what this whole article has been talking about without running around in circles. <laughs> yeah, and, and and this is where we, we have to kind of remind ourselves, because this has gone on for several months now and will continue on for 25 pages more, uh, but uh, we just covered two pages today. Yay! Um, but, uh, um, you know... Th that means the, there's the only 15 weeks left. <laughs> People will stop listening if we say it that way. But but the the place of the apology of the Augsburg Confession is it is purely um, a logical response to the confutation, mm -hmm. and, and and that's its historical context. Yep. Yep. And so I mean, if, if we want to dig more into you know just kind of the the bullet points of our faith, the the Augsburg Confession itself uh, does that really well in, in, in much more succinct ways, and that was its intent 
and purpose to defend our faith, what we were teaching as a church. And now we're, we're responding. So, I mean, he's using the full use of logic and rhetoric and, and, and how you write to um, these issues and making that defense. And so, right, he's engaging every single thing that they threw out there. And so this is very much the point. It is exactly what we have been talking about for months <laughs> um, because that, that, that's how you do this argument. Um, that's how you... That's how you do it. Um, It's the way a lawyer argues. Exactly. That you're going to, you're not going to leave loopholes. And so every time he brings up any point, he repeats, yeah, he repeats the entire argument in every single point so that there are no loose ends. So you can't go to part of this and read it and think that he's saying something different than what he is saying somewhere else. He's trying to make it so you can't rip what he's saying out of a context. Uh, Yeah. I was just going to say, it almost sounds like he's, because the habit of of the Roman Catholics in this case was to take things out of context from Scripture, um, and and just kind of ignore it. He's basically making an argument that doesn't allow them to do that with his own words. But unfortunately, what that requires for us who are reading it is to read all the words over and over and over again. I really like this particular section that we've read today as a really good, solid response to people who ask about well, what do Lutherans do with the Book of James? Because we get that a lot. I mean, you especially hear the, oh, Luther hated James. He called it the epistle of straw and he threw it out of his Bible. And, you know, some of that's true and some of it's not. And, you know, he didn't like it either. And you Lutherans, you want, you want to throw it out too. But this is a good response, even contemporary to Luther in that time when he was struggling through James of, oh, here's how we handle this. And oh, by the way, this is always how we've handled it. And hey, this is how the church has handled it throughout time. Yeah, and, and and maybe even a little more simply than, um, you know, well, a little more simply, a lawyer's arguing his case here. And so what has been thrown out by the prosecution, for instance, we'll just call the Catholics like prosecution, the, prosecution. The, the adversaries, right? What has been thrown out by the adversaries are these cases or, or these these matters that could be damning to your case right it, mm-hmm. it could really you know kind of unravel and they're like oh look here here's here's james well as a lawyer you know if i'm arguing the defense right which is what he's doing here the apology the defense of the augsburg confession well i have to i have to wrestle with this and so he has to hit every single point um and that is the whole purpose of the apology here but in that sense what he does here with this james text which is really kind of a big text that they're using against the lutherans the adversaries the catholics are at that time uh what he's doing is is a beautiful summary of our lutheran christian faith on the on the um article of justification and where good works follow right and uh and he's just he's laying out this beautiful case and I think it would be helpful for us to, to to talk a little bit. You talked earlier, Pastor Fisk, about James itself and mm-hmm. in its context, but talk a little bit about that context. And so there I might start us with, with saying that in the context of James, it seems like there are, you know, they're kind of the, the Jews that are dispersed, the churches dispersed at this time that James is writing to. And it seems like there's, there's teachers out here who are talking about a whole lot about faith. And, and uh, you know, oh, I have faith and follow my faith. And, and, and it seems pretty clear that that's what's going on. And James is essentially saying, practice discernment. Mm-hmm. If they're talking about faith, where does that show itself? How, how, how do we know 
um, because God knows the heart. Only God searches the heart. We, we know that, right? And so mm-hmm. we're not saying that, you know, oh, you know, because I don't see the faith that I, I think you should have or something like that. What that I you're expect to see. Yeah, things like that. But we are practicing discernment. And what does scripture say about those who are people of faith? That these things will be present. And so if, if you really if you really do have the faith, like you're saying you do, how, how do I know that? Show that to me. Um, and, and, and these are the things, you know, caring for the widows and orphans that scripture says, follow faith. And so he's saying nothing different than St. Paul himself uh, does in his epistles. In a way, it's, it's kind of ironic, I suppose, for our present age, because he normally wouldn't, I don't think, make this connection. But the, the way you just described the false teachers that are that are being listened to at this time period are those who would draw a sharp line between doctrine and practice and say, I have doctrine. It's this thing we believe over here, and I confess that, but practice is different. I live in a context where I don't have to apply this doctrine to it. It doesn't really belong in what I'm doing right now. And and the the, the lie is put to that real quick when you use the, the Ten Commandments as doctrine, right? So if you say, I believe you shall not murder, and then you murder, well, you're obviously a liar. It gets tougher when you talk about I believe I should love my neighbor as myself. Now it's not as evident, you know, what that means. But in in either case, and I think this is Melanchthon's main point here, never does he remove faith from the equation. Never does he make the works which we do for the love of our neighbor the starting point or the end point of our regeneration or the merit by which we get God to love us. All of this is how we live now that we know who we are in Christ. There's a wonderful book out there, uh, I don't know, have you read this? Uh, Dr. David Scare from Concordia, Fort Wayne, has a book called James, the Apostle of Faith. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole book is is about how James and Paul basically line right up with each other when you let them speak with their, on their own terms and with their own language. So the other piece I throw in, I'll throw it back to you guys, is, is that one of the hardest things about reading the Bible, and, and the New Testament particularly, is to recognize that John is not James, is not Paul, is not Peter. And that means, as Scripture interprets Scripture, you can't, that doesn't mean that I can use my concordance to look up a word wherever it shows up in the English Bible in all these four different writers and assume it always is talking about the same thing. Yeah. Sometimes these writers have different meanings for the words they're using. A great example of this is the word flesh, which in Paul, this is a bad word. Flesh is never a good thing. In John, John loves the word flesh. Flesh is all about the incarnation of Jesus, right? And if you just transpose those or transport the information from one to the other, you're going to run into some problems. Paul and James use the word justification to talk about a totally different issue, which does not set them against each other. In fact, it lines up really, really well with what we call the new obedience. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, I, I I wanted to make sure that you didn't want to jump in there, but <laughs> this this is uh, this is the nature of hermeneutics, which comes in, which oftentimes uh, you know we we studied hermeneutics when we went to the seminary, and sometimes we think is only limited to pastors, but really it's just good education. You know, words mean things, and and we have to in order to be able to communicate on anything on any level, we got to have some level and ability to be able to interpret words Mm. and that has to be formed somewhere and we should be doing it in the churches is where bible study comes in real handy Mm. because you can wrestle with these things as a group together uh led by your pastor who is trained in to teach these things um but uh and, and that was certainly lacking at the time of the reformation you know they were just trusting whatever the 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 priests or you know the 
the uh, the church leadership were telling them. And so they were telling them, you know, you want you want peace with God, you want to have some hope, you know, past this this life. Um, which they were desperate for, well, you got to do these works, right? The the hard thing about words meaning things is that we often forget that they don't mean the same thing for all time, that those meanings change, and that those meanings are not intrinsic to the order of letters or sounds coming out of their mouth. Like, we, if I were to say that Pastor Sean is looking very gay today. He means something different Yeah, I mean, years come ago. on. That's a totally different. He's, he's looking at me kind of offended today. Uh, you don't. There, is that better? Yeah. <laughs> well, but when, I mean, when just he has understand. the offended look, it is not gay and married. That is <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, even, even in the classical you don't look understanding of that you word. You look angry. Oh, um, what happened? That word never fits me. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I mean, that's, that's one of the things we have to remember. Words mean things, but they mean different things in different times, and they can mean different things when different people say them. And mean different things in different contexts. And what that means isn't that we just throw out intelligibility altogether. It means, no, we work that much harder to understand what does it mean right here. Well, the, the word context that you just threw in there, that's the real linchpin and, and joker, as it were, because it, it is important to recognize that it's real and exists and has to be taken into account, and yet it also can become the whipping boy of false teaching, which wants to get rid of everything sure. that is meant in well, the and that's why we that's why we get scared of it, because we see it abused in that way so often where, well, words don't really have meaning. I can make it mean whatever I want, and now I'm a heretic. I or, mean, we do see that happening, and we're afraid of that happening ourselves or being a party to that by acknowledging that words might not have inherent meaning in and of themselves. Right. Which, I mean, the, the way that, that context gets abused that I hear is someone will say something like, well, the words that, that Paul wrote about man, a woman in Christ, that was for the first century, but now we live in different times. And so we're in a different context. So those words don't apply to us anymore. Or they might say what the confessions say about the Lord's Supper being something that's great to pursue on a weekly basis. That was for a different time and a different place. But for us, you know, those, those words don't really apply. And so context becomes kind of the scapegoat for yeah. getting rid of the meaning of the words sure. as opposed to a tool for understanding the meaning of the words. And and yep. that's kind of the issue is how are you coming at it? Are you using the context to understand what it's actually saying or to get out of what's being said? And and it can go either way. And and, and not to kind of get off on a whole, you know, discussion of words and their <laughs> meanings here. Um, but, uh, you know, even there, if you take a look at, you know, you use the example of gay. Mm-hmm. Well, why has that morphed in our interpretation of that word? I do want to distinguish between the meaning of the word and how we interpret it. Sure, um, because I don't be think that meaning too. changes. Um, our interpretation of it does. And so this dr- drives it back to where did that come about? Well, historically, uh, a certain group of people, the homosexual community, as you know, it's often referred to and so forth, were very lively and happy. I mean, we, we even know this kind of from, from media and so forth. That they're often, yeah, they're, they're portrayed in that kind of way. And so when they were saying they're gay, they were using the word rightly for hmm. its meaning. We have interpreted it to mean that it's towards this certain community that that hold the, holds those values and belief. And so, what has changed there is the interpretation. The meaning has not, and and that's what we often see change a lot. I think. But getting back then to our context here in James and so forth, is this is what exactly what we're arguing is that um, the the adversaries this this. Texas speaking more against them than the Lutherans because their interpretation of even the way that James is talking about faith, which they've kind of thrown out of their argument, you know, uh, at this point, is their interpretation of it has changed. 
and this is getting back to the way that they had formerly talked about faith earlier in, in our in the, um, their presentation of it is that foams that faith formed by love. And so it's these works. And so their interpretation of faith has changed. Um, but the Lutherans are saying, no, in James's context, right? In, in the meaning of the words, it is, it is very much in support of us that faith comes first. We are at peace with God through that, uh, through Christ. And, uh, and so then, yes, these good works follow. And it's going to show, it's going to be a faith that shows itself. And, uh, and, and they did a very good job of doing exegesis. These are the meaning of the words and the interpretation of it in James's own context, Mm-hmm. Um, they they lay that out first, second, third very well right there, and then it it's clearly supports our point. Well, they're the, the meanings of the words that James himself intends to use, and, and that's kind of I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you, Pastor Smith, but I, I'm going to say that words are bigger than tongues, if I can say it that way. That, that the meaning of truth, the logos, the, the the thing that really is that we're trying to convey, it is unchangeable. You know, you exist, I exist, chairs exist, justification exists. We're using sounds to try to talk about them. And language, because of Babel, is the confusion of being unable to talk about them clearly. And language, as a result of Babel, I would say, is in a state of ever, ever present decay. And if you study English, you see the example we were talking about earlier, not that it's just moving toward a sinful lifestyle or anything like that, but the, the language itself is constantly falling apart and being patched up again. Text that, messaging. Yeah, right. Great example. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but, uh, but in that, the, the, the error of the postmodern mind is to say that therefore there is no truth. Therefore, there are no words that, or meanings that are bigger than this that, that outlast this. And this is where Pentecost for us is such an answer where God's word is way bigger than our tongues. He doesn't, he doesn't care about our tongues. He'll work right past them if he has to. And, and so he does. And so we believe and so we trust. And we pursue that meaning, believing that what has been written for us before in its context, as the words were used then, has a meaning that also can be received and believed and reconfessed. This is the point of confession to speak again with different contextual sounds, the words that have been and are constantly confessed, the one faith, the one dogma, the one doctrine, the, the truth of God uh, that, that we have in, in Christianity. Well, and the, and the reason that is true is because this truth is revealed by God to us. That's, that's where this comes from. So we're not just relying on our own reason, on our own strength, on our own understanding, we're looking and saying, what is the revealed truth from God to us? Well, that's what scripture is. And it's important to talk about the meanings of this because it's it, it's God's perspective. It's God's truth that he has delivered to us. And that's what we need to focus on. So postmodernism, modernism, whatever, I don't care. What did God say? And what did he give to us? And, and not really enough time to do justice to this, but uh, I, I do want to bring out here uh, paragraph 131. Here to be justified does not mean that a righteous person is made from a wicked person. It means to be pronounced righteous in a judicial sense. They're identifying their terms here. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're giving the meaning it. to the words. Here's, where, here's and, how we're uh, using it. And, and, and this is very key for us in this article on justification. How are we made righteous before God? How are we justified? Um, well, this is the judicial sense, right? Is that we are guilty. We, we have not done enough good works. We have not loved enough. We have not, you know, all these things have not flowed forth from my life, but I am declared 
righteous. I'm declared just before God on account of Christ. He's the object of our faith. He's Mm -hmm. the rock upon which the church is built. uh, And thus also this article. Amen. As Pastor Sean Smith, he is, as we say, unanswerable and the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois. You also heard Mr. Peter Slayton, social media manager of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, who recently helped set up text giving for the Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. That number again, Mr. Slayton? 41444. Text LCMS Harvey to 41444. Four, three fours at the end. Follow the instructions that come texted back to you. I am Pastor Jonathan Fisk, your host here on Concord Matters on the first, second, and fifth Tuesdays of your month. We'll catch you next week as well with more apology to the Augsburg Confession. Until then, I recommend you keep rocking on.